Well, if you would take your Bibles out and turn to Revelation chapter 1. <coughs> Revelation chapter 1. It's just a brief reading this morning, but we will be looking at Revelation 1, 5-6. And if you are able, I would invite you to please stand out of reverence for God's Word. This is Revelation 1, 5-6. To Him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by His blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, as our Savior prayed for us, sanctify us in the truth. Your Word is truth. Fill our hearts with amazement at who You are and who Jesus is for us as we study this doxology in John's letter to the churches. Father, we pray that you would be with us now, that you would sanctify us by this truth and make us more like the Jesus we worship. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, doxology is one of those words that you don't usually bump into outside of the context of a worship service. If you've been in a Presbyterian church for most of your life, you might think of the old 100th, uh, the doxology, which is commonly sung. When I sing it to uh, my daughters at nighttime, we say, um, praise God from whom all blessings flow, 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 and that gets a good giggle. Um, but what in the world is doxology other than the title of a hymn that we're used to, maybe even from childhood? Well, doxology comes from the Greek word uh, doxologia, doxa from glory, and logia, a word or a saying. So what we have here is a word of glory. We could call it glory speak. Uh, the first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, a uh, simple summary of what our church teaches, uh, it starts with a word about glory. Many of you know this by heart. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So your chief end, the thing for which you were created, the thing that your life should aim at through and through is glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. But left to yourself, you don't enjoy God very much because if you are honest, you find it hard to glorify God very much. You're created to live a doxology life, a life that gives God glory in everything, all the time. That's the rhythm that your heart was created to be. But each and every one of us has a problem doing that until grace works inside us. It works its wonders in us, day in and day out, lifting our eyes uh, from looking inward to looking upward to the true King of glory. Before you're gripped by the grace of Jesus, you have doxological arrhythmia. Your heart beats horribly out of step, out of rhythm, out of sync with the way you were created to live. You have a doxology disorder, we might say. A dangerous doxology disorder. The doxologies of Scripture, uh, one of which we just read and we'll be looking at this morning, uh, these doxologies or these words of glory spoken about God are pacemakers for your heart spiritually. They're wonderfully suited to getting your heart back on track with the way that you were created to live. So as you meditate on these doxologies and as the Holy Spirit uh, works their truth in you, 
Uh, your heart is reordered in a right doxological direction. The doxologies in Scripture reorder your glory-disordered heart so that it can uh, beat in the way it's supposed to, not seeking your own glory, but instead praising the one who is worthy of all glory, the one whose glory should be your spiritual heartbeat. So over the next few weeks, I want to look at some of these doxologies in Scripture and the rich truths that uh, we find in them. In a sermon series, we'll just call doxology. It's very original. I came up with it myself. Well, this doxology we're looking at this morning, this first doxology, is uh, it's found in the opening of John's uh, revelation or the revelation that John received about things to come. In Revelation 1, 5 to 6, the Apostle John writes this soaring doxology, this explosion of praise that reorders our hearts in rhythm with how we were rescued by Jesus to live. We're just going to look at the first line this morning uh, in John 1, verse 5, where John says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. That's the one to whom John says, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So this morning, we're just going to look at the high-level truths that we learn in this first verse. And then next week, we're going to uh, finish out this doxology looking a little more closely at uh, the background that really informs uh, what John is writing here. But I think this morning, focusing on John, uh, what he says in Revelation 1-5 to will be encouraging to us. I want to show you three truths about yourself. Three truths about yourself that you need to know and believe in order to give all glory to God alone. The first truth is you were held captive by sin. Second, you were set free by Jesus' blood. And finally, third truth, your Savior Jesus loves you. So let's look at the first truth this morning. The first truth about yourself that you need to know. uh, You were held captive by sin. John writes, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. This doxology is set in the experience of a believer, of a Christian, of those who know Jesus. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, what you need to grapple with today is that uh, you're still held captive. That sin still holds you captive and you need to be set free. But if you are a Christian, here's what you need to see. You need to understand what is sin. And how it held you captive. Because you can only be freed, right, from something that holds you captive. That much, I think, is clear. You need to know what that sin was and the fact that you were bound by it with no way of escaping it. It's worth noting, though, we're not going to really get into much uh, very deeply into the book of Revelation this morning. It's worth noting that uh, the major theme or one of the major themes of Revelation is idolatry, the worthlessness of worshiping idols, the worthlessness of idolatry. That's how Revelation describes the sin that binds the human heart. Revelation reveals that a lot of idolatry is behind the whole mess of sin that we get ourselves in. The churches at Pergamum and Thyatira are called out for practicing idolatry in Revelation 2. At the end of the seven trumpets of judgment in Revelation 9, where uh, we see the judgment that is sent out upon the God-opposing and church-persecuting world, uh, we read of people clinging to their idols in the face of that judgment. And then they are brought into judgment. Revelation 12 traces the ancient battle between the church and the dragon. 
between the seed of the woman and the seed of that ancient serpent, that ancient deceiver whose opening salvo against God's people was to tempt Adam and Eve with the prospect of becoming like God. It was an idolatrous proposal. We could go on and on, but you get the idea. The sin that holds the human heart captive is described throughout Revelation in terms of idolatry. So when I say your fundamental spiritual disorder is a doxology disorder, that's just another way of saying that you have an idolatry problem. You have a problem with idols. Sin is any way in which you are walking out of step with or living uh, in violation of God's law. Because you give God glory by walking according to His ways, by keeping His commandments, by abiding in His will. Because that's how you give glory to God, then all sin is a glory problem. It's a doxology pointed in the wrong direction. It's pointing the glory that you give in life to the wrong thing or the wrong person. Giving glory to something other than God. All sin is idolatry. And all idolatry because it's worship according to our terms, uh, to whomever or whatever we choose to worship, all idolatry ultimately points uh, to our own glory. It elevates ourselves above God who alone is worthy of glory. The the word of glory which we were created to give to God, uh, when we don't give that word of glory to God, it has to be directed somewhere else. That's the way it works. We will give glory to God or to something else or someone else. Notice what Paul said about where this word of glory is to be directed or is directed when we don't believe. When we are still in our unbelief, this is where the glory goes. Romans 1.21 and following. For though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Their glory went to stuff and things and the creation instead of the Creator. So what are some of the ways that uh, you exchange God's glory for your own, even as a Christian? Revelation 1.5 says Jesus has freed us from our sins by His blood. But it's worth considering what are those sins from which uh, we have been freed. The sins that held us captive and the sins which still rear their ugly heads in our lives. Well, we can cover a lot of ground by looking at two ways that uh, your hearts are bent inward. Glorifying yourself instead of turning upward to glorify God. Most sin is an expression of one of these two tendencies. So what are they? Well, the first sinful bent or tendency of your heart is this. Your heart is bent towards self-rule. Towards self-rule. You don't have to be a systematic theologian to know this is true. Uh, If you're a parent, just look across the breakfast table. From the moment that your child can sling oatmeal on the floor in defiance of eat your breakfast, kid, uh, you know that this is true. From the moment that kids uh, can do this, they really evidence what the Protestant reformer Martin Luther called ambitio divinitatis. See, you thought they were just babbling this whole time. They were just speaking Latin, right? Ambitio divinitatis. What's that? God ambition. God ambition. The ambition to be God. We're adept at building our own towers of Babel, trying to be God from the moment we can babble like little babies 
trying to do it all by herself, rivaling the rule of God in our hearts and lives. When, when we constantly covet bigger toys because we want to keep up with the neighbors, when you indulge uh, the gossiping coworker with just one more little juicy piece of gossip that you happen to know, when you slice your son or your daughter just a little sharper with your words instead of an apology and shutting down the shouting match immediately. You know, sometimes we're guilty of thinking that idolatry is just the big ones. Uh, you know, adultery, looking at the wrong things, overindulging, uh, all of these things that we think are just, you know, that is the really, really bad thing we call idolatry. But you can be looking for God in the bottom of a bag of potato chips just as much as in the bottom of a bottle. All of these things, all of these things are just as bad in the face of a holy God. Bad things and good things that we make into God things, that's idolatry. It's that deadly doxological problem of our hearts beating wildly out of rhythm with the way that we were created to live giving glory to something or to someone other than God. So remember, though, these sins uh, used to hold you prisoner. Uh, if you were a believer, uh, you've been set free. But your heart is still sinfully bent in this direction. It's something to recognize and be aware of. I hope you're not sitting there thinking, boy, I'm sure glad that can't happen to me anymore. I'm sure glad that I don't struggle with that. That's, that's a good thing, isn't it? That's just not reality. No, our freedom is from sin's penalty and sin's power, but sin's present isn't eradicated in the life of the Christian. If you think that's the case, then you've either not been a Christian for very long, or you've not been around very many Christians. And if you stick around here for very long, I'm sure, sadly, we will disabuse you of that notion. Sin is still present even in the Christian's heart. And we're going to look in just a moment about what that, what that freedom really truly means, but be honest this morning with your heart. Be honest with the ways that you still are bent towards self-rule, doing your own thing, giving glory to yourself. So still looking at this first truth that you need to know about yourself, uh, that's the first way that your sin holds you captive. You have this tendency towards self-rule. But there's another way that your heart is bent towards sin, and that's you're bent towards self-rescue. Self-rescue. This may not seem like sin, but it's a subtle way you fool yourself into thinking You've escaped sin's grasp when really you're just painting over your idolatry with good performance. Again, I go back to Luther because his, his idea of how we all have this ambition, this desire to be God, is really helpful here. He includes not just your self-rule, doing your own thing, going your own way, being your own boss and disobeying God. He includes also your self-righteousness as a deadly error. This idea of wanting to be God by rescuing yourself. I think we look around, we ought to just say, look, we, you know, you can look at the person next to you and say, you're pretty cool and all, but you're not worth worshiping. But how often do we fool ourselves into thinking we can rescue ourselves? Looking inside yourself to rescue yourself, to kind of climb out of the mess you've made by your own performance is pretty silly. And it's just as much of a doxology problem as overt rebellion against God. It's just as sinful. It's just as idolatrous. It's looking inward for a Savior instead of upward to God alone. Uh, Luther says that to rely on self-righteousness is tantamount to making an idol out of yourself. I quote what Luther says. He says, self-rescue through works is trying to capture heaven by force, which is to deny God and to set oneself up in the place of God. 
You know, there's a funny story about Luther. Uh, during the Reformation, uh, Luther's friend, George Spallatin, he kidnapped him to keep him safe from those who would uh, see Luther killed for the Reformation work he was doing. They kidnapped Luther and they hid him away in Wartburg Castle. They faked his capture and, of course, they kept him safe. I'm sure it took him a little while to be really good buddies with George after that. But from the safety of the castle, he wrote many letters which he sent from his friend George to various uh, co-laborers in the gospel. And I want you to hear what he said uh, through his friend George the Kidnapper to his friend Philip Melanchthon. Luther wrote this in his letter. He said, Be strong in the Lord, and on my behalf continuously admonish Philip not to become like God, but to fight that innate ambition to be like God, which was planted in us in paradise by the devil. This doesn't do us any good. It drove Adam from paradise, and it alone also drives us away and drives peace away from us. In summary, we are to be men and not God. It will not be otherwise, or eternal anxiety and affliction will be our reward. He's talking about resisting this self-righteous impulse towards self-rescue. Do you want to know the recipe for being a really anxious Christian all the time? Keep trying to earn your salvation by your works. Keep trying to rescue yourself. You've been freed from that, but so often you walk right back into that prison, right back into that miserable cell. You sit down on the, on the bench and you say, I wanted to rescue myself. And you slam the door and you clank it shut and the lock clicks when you've been freed. But you keep trying to rescue yourself. When you try to rescue yourself by your good performance, if you've ever been to a pet store and you see the hamsters running on the little wheel, right? That's you. And it's ridiculous. The hamster thinks he's the fastest thing on earth. He's better than Speedy Gonzalez, just running away, tickety-tickety-tick in, in his little hamster wheel. And where's he going? He's not getting anywhere. That's just as silly as when you try to save yourself by your good works. And to a world full of squeaking hamster wheels, the God of heaven and earth says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 45.22. Those words from Isaiah, which we heard earlier, and you noticed how he's calling out idolatry, uh, those words are for you too. In your idolatrous attempts at rescuing yourself by your good works. God says, give it a rest. Step out of the hamster wheel. Turn to me and be saved. Just breathe and receive what I freely give in Jesus. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you need to hear this. Please hear this. You cannot save yourself. You cannot save yourself. Run to the throne of grace where arms are open wide saying, turn to me and be saved for I am God and there is no other. God says, don't turn into yourself. Don't try to live life by your own rules. And don't try to rescue yourself climbing out of the mess you've made. Turn to me and be saved. Self-rule and self-rescue are both dead ends that only God can save you from. Turn to me and be saved, he says. So that's the first truth you need to know about yourself. You've been held captive by sin. Going back now to Revelation 1, 5-6 with this sin that held us captive uh, defined, uh, let's look at how we overcome this doxology disorder, this out-of-spiritual rhythm way of living life. This way that, on the one hand, seeks our own pleasure by building uh, Babel, and on the other hand, uh, seeks our own salvation like the 
cute little hamster running in the wheel. How do we get ourselves out of this mess? What you need to know is that you were set free by Jesus' blood, Christian. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been set free by the blood of Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, this is what is offered to you in the gospel. Complete freedom purchased at a great cost by the Savior who bled and died for sins. God himself and the person of the Son entered this world. He became a flesh and blood man. And by living according to God's will in everything, always giving doxology pointed in the right direction, giving God glory in everything, he was perfectly obedient in all the ways that we fail. And then he went to the cross and he shed his blood to free you from your sin. And on that cross, as he represented the perfect life crushed and sacrificed for sin, it frees you from God ambition. You don't have to do your own thing anymore and you certainly don't have to try to rescue yourself. You never could anyway. It's only because of Jesus. It freed you from your sin. Hendrickson says in his great little commentary on the book of Revelation, he says, notice that believers are, believers are said to be loosed, not merely washed from their sins. In that one observation, properly understood, there is material for a whole sermon. Well, I won't make it a whole sermon this morning. Some of you got nervous when Hendrickson says that. We're certainly going to look at it, though, for just a moment because it is an amazing truth. This is powerful news. If you're reading the King James or maybe the New King James Version, uh, maybe someone is, uh, the Greek manuscripts behind those translations of Revelation say that we were washed of our sins. Washed of our sins. And that's very true, of course. It's an incredible, beautiful, biblical truth. But there's really stronger support uh, from other manuscripts behind the text of Revelation to look at this word as loosed or set free. That seems to be what John actually wrote. It's a verb that breaks chains. It's a verb that sets captives free. Washed by the blood is true. Both of these things are true. But what an amazing truth to have been set free. Set free from our sins. Loosed from the bonds that held us. We're focusing pretty narrowly uh, on this doxology in John 1, 5-6. But maybe we can understand this point a little bit better by reading one verse before the doxology. Uh, the first half of verse 5, in fact, which we haven't read yet where we read that Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And I want you to notice that second description of Jesus. The firstborn from the dead. He is risen. He is alive forevermore. He says of himself, of himself in verse 18 that he holds the keys of death. Those keys are the keys to your freedom. Those are the keys that set you free. We couldn't uh, live if it were not for those keys. We know that we're not free from sin's presence or we wouldn't confess our sins week in and week out. We wouldn't confess our sins and receive God's cleansing every week when we gather here to worship Him. It's not freedom from the presence of sin, but it's freedom from sin's penalty and its power. By His blood, it's true, you have been washed, but you have been set free from your sin. Before putting your faith in Christ, you were chained to sin. You were absolutely and completely under its power. Maybe you feel pretty tough, like you're the one calling the shots, but that's not true. You were a prisoner chained in your sin. 
I told you a couple of weeks ago about a backpacking trip that I took one time um, when I decided to carry all the ketchup and mustard and mayonnaise. Well, the guide on that trip, um, he had this amazing dog that was part German Shepherd and part wolf. They call it a wolf dog. It's a, a super strong. This thing was a beast. It had its own dog backpack, and it packed all of its stuff in on this week-long hike itself. In the backpack, there was a log chain, a log chain, not a little leash, but an actual chain with hooks to wrap around a tree and to connect it to this dog's collar. Uh, we had to use this log chain because this wolf dog would spend all night chasing marmots across, across British Columbia. It would spend all night doing its favorite thing in the world. I don't think anything brought this animal more joy than chasing these little weasels across the prairie. You could just ask him, what's on your bucket list? I don't know, just chasing gophers the rest of my life. We would chain him up, and you could watch him at night. He would catch the scent. He'd get so excited. He would run to the end of the chain, and then, bam, he'd flip over. Because he's absolutely stuck. He wasn't hurt. He's a wolf dog. But he's stuck. He's not going anywhere. That's you before you're set free from sin. No matter how free you thought you were, no matter how much you've tried to pursue joy, no matter how much you've thought that that thing that will just make you happy is right in your grasp, you're stuck. You could never reach it. What Jesus has done is he's walked over and he's unlocked the chain. And now you can have joy in him. You can have happiness in him. I'm sure many of you knew what it was like for your life to just, bam, flip over. Because you're pursuing something you could never reach. But in Jesus, joy is yours. The death and the resurrection of the perfect, sinless Son of God has made him the rightful holder of the keys to unlock the chains and give you your freedom. If you're here this morning and you don't know this freedom from sin, and you're still locked up, and you still feel your life flipping over every time you think you've almost got it, turn to Jesus. He holds the keys to deliver you. If you're here this morning and you've been sitting in a church pew for as long as there have been church pews, don't let that stop you from turning to Jesus today. If you're realizing that you're just a self-rescuer who thinks he's really fast like a hamster on a wheel, but hasn't really trusted in Jesus for forgiveness, hasn't really turned to him, turn to him this morning. Let him set you free. Sin will continue to be rooted out of your heart until we see Jesus return. But its penalty is paid. Its power over you is done. It cannot harm you. It cannot destroy you. It cannot condemn you because of Jesus. It has been decisively, decisively dealt with. You're free from the claims that sin had over you. You're freed from its power to control your approach to God, running from him in rebellion or uh, trying to claw your way back to him, rescuing yourself. How does grasping all of this uh, show up in the way you live? Well, that's the final point. I don't want to leave this out because this is maybe the most amazing truth and the most incredible way that John could have begun this doxology. You need to know not just that you were, your sin held you captive and not just that Jesus has set you free by his blood. You need to know that your Savior Jesus loves you. Your Savior Jesus loves you. The first two truths about you that you need to know, those were in the past tense. You were set free. You were held captive and then you were set free. This is a present tense truth. In fact, Jesus loves you right now. 
in this moment. It's a present tense reality. It's been observed that this is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus' love for you is spoken of as a right now thing. We'll come to that, but why would John mention this to these believers receiving the book of Revelation in the first place? Well, they had a really hard life. They were under a lot of pressure to conform to the world. They were being persecuted, and the world would see their hearts aligned uh, to this God-opposing rebellion, out of beat with the way they were created to live. They were persecuted. They were harassed. Work was hard. Social life was difficult. They were probably picked on by the neighbor kids. Life was horrible. Their life was miserable. That's the external pressure they were under. And then because they're human beings like you and me, they faced the same pressure of sin on the inside that we face. They needed to know that they had a Savior who loves them. In a book called uh, Gentle and Lowly, uh, PCA pastor Dane Ortland describes normal Christians, not bad Christians, not so-so Christians, normal Christians, and this is how he describes them. Normal Christians are those who find ourselves thinking, how could I mess up that badly again? As those who have that increasing suspicion that God's patience with us is wearing thin. Those who know God loves us but suspect we have deeply disappointed Him. Who have told others of the love of Christ yet wonder if as for us, He harbors mild resentment. Does that ring true with you? I hear those descriptions and think, I must be a normal Christian then. I felt that way this week. I'm sure you have too. This doxology is what we need to reset our gaze on the Savior who loves us. The doxology launches into praise with that simple point, to him who loves us. Only place in the New Testament where Christ's love is pictured as continuing in the presence. John 3.16 gets close. For God so loved the world, past tense, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Ephesians 2, 4-5, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, past tense. Galatians 2, 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me, past tense. Romans 5, 8 probably comes closest. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And of course, it's incredible that God would ever love us at all, past tense or not, but it is an anchor for your confidence and assurance that God loves you right now and Jesus loves you in the present tense. It's a children's song that many of you grew up singing. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. This is where it tells you. This is where it says that Jesus loves you. Right now, in this very moment, as you by faith are clinging to Jesus, he is in the present tense the one who loves you. The one who loves you. That's a pacemaker for our doxology, isn't it? That sets our hearts back in the right direction to glorify God and to enjoy Jesus forever. What difference should this make in your life? Well, just that. Run from self-rescue because you can't do it anyway. Turn from self-rule because it always ends up in a mess anyway. And look to Jesus. He loves you. He gave himself for you. Live your life pointed in that direction to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood 
To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for showing us Jesus. Your love in him, the one who loves us, the one who shed his blood to set us free to live pointing all glory to you, always and in everything. Open the eyes, Father, of those still stuck in their sins to see Jesus standing there with the keys of grace to set them free. Keep those who believe from the idols of self-rule and self-rescue. Make us aware in every moment of every day of that simple surprising, sustaining truth. Jesus loves me. In the name of him who loves us, we pray. Amen.